The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Why don't you take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 7 as we complete our study in the Sermon on the Mount today. Somewhat of a miracle. But uh, we have made it through um, a number of messages at this point and we're pointing to this conclusion in the same way that Jesus pointed to it, namely that we should hear the Word of God with a heart to obey. And so we're going to be looking at that today beginning at verse 24 up through verse 29, the end of chapter 7. When I was in Japan as a missionary, I experienced one of the most terrifying and remarkable experiences of my life on January 31st, 1995. I woke up early that morning, it was a Tuesday morning, and every Tuesday I used to go to the house of an of a older Japanese man and his wife, uh, and he was the pastor of the small church I was working with there. And we would have a wonderful time, ordinarily, uh, praying together and eating a Japanese breakfast, and uh, they would be very patient with my Japanese language skills, and we would communicate and talk together. And it was a very pleasant thing, and I enjoyed it a lot. But that morning was different than any other. Because that morning, as I was getting dressed, all of a sudden the entire house began to shake. The whole house was shaking, and it was shaking so strongly that the curtains in the room were moving back and forth like they were being blown by a strong breeze. It was an earthquake, and it was a big one. Over 7, I think a 7.1 in our city. And uh, at that particular moment, I really didn't know what I was thinking. I know that one of my children came down with eyes as wide as saucers and said that a giant was shaking the house. Um, But it wasn't a giant. It was that the very ground on which the house was built was moving. Uh, The earthquake was centered on Awaji Island, which is halfway between Tokushima, the city where we lived, and the major population area of Kobe. And in that city, it it went much worse for them than it went for us. Over 5,000 people died in that earthquake. But yet God was gracious because it came so early in the morning and the thousands, even tens of thousands of Japanese commuters had not yet begun their commute that morning and so God was gracious. Uh, A couple months later, I went to see the city with a friend of mine and we looked uh, particularly at one aspect of the damage and it was the Hanshin Expressway, an elevated superhighway, I think six lanes and perhaps four, but it's elevated maybe about 50 or 60 feet off the ground. And it's super modern. It was built with all the best Japanese technology, and it had toppled over uh, in the midst of the earthquake. And I looked at the foundation of it, and it had been wrenched and twisted, and that's what caused the whole toppling at that point. The earth had moved. There had been a split in the earth right at that place, and the whole thing had toppled. And it's interesting because the Japanese people are well aware that they live on, on a major fault, and they're always ready for earthquakes, but it just shows the futility of human effort with such power as that. But it also underscores another point. It's the very point that Jesus seeks to underscore here. If the foundation is moved, the whole structure topples. If the foundation is not secure, if the foundation is movable, then everything on that foundation is vulnerable. The flip side is if you can find a foundation that will not move, then anything built on it is safe and secure. And that's the very point that Jesus makes here. When he says in verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not 
put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Verse 28, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. And that's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, it's so important that we understand the context, and especially when a section that you begin preaching on begins with the word, therefore. The word, therefore, connects it logically to what we were just talking about. And what were we just talking about? Do you remember last week? It's been seven more days. Do you know the scripture says your salvation is nearer now than when you first believed? Every week is bringing us closer and closer to seeing God face to face. Those of you who are Christians should rejoice in that. You should be thrilled. Those of you who are not yet Christians should realize that the patience of God is there to give you time to repent and to believe in him. But we're one week closer. Do you remember what happened last week? We were talking in verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, etc., etc. Do you see the connection? The connection is between those who claim to be Christians and really are, and those who claim to be Christians and really aren't, what is the difference? The difference is one hears the word of God and puts it into practice. The other hears the word of God and neglects it, ignores it, disobeys it. That's the connection to the immediate context. Therefore, Jesus said, if you don't want this to happen to you, if you don't want to be there on judgment day and be shocked and surprised that Jesus didn't know you, then listen to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And test yourself to see what you've done with the whole Sermon on the Mount. Did you hear and obey? Did you seek to put it into practice or did you not? And that is the issue. So Jesus is getting us ready for that. But then there's the whole larger context of chapter 7. Throughout chapter 7, Jesus has been getting ready, getting his people ready for Judgment Day. He begins by discussing it, in which he says we should not judge or we will be judged. So right away at the beginning of chapter 7, there's this sense of judgment. In verse 12, he says that, that... The law and the prophets are summed up with this simple thing that you should do to others what you would have them do to you. That's a judgment day oracle. In other words, as you look at the way you deal with others, do you follow and and submit to the summation of the law and the prophets? And then Jesus challenged us that we should enter the narrow gate and that we should follow that narrow road, you remember? For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many travel along that road. And so Jesus is consistently getting us ready for judgment day. He says, what? Watch out for false prophets. They're pointing the wrong way. They're leading you to that wide gate, that that easy road. Don't listen to them, but follow me, in effect. So he's getting us ready for Judgment Day. But then there's the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And what has been the theme of the whole Sermon on the Mount? Is it not the heart righteousness that is characteristic of the kingdom of heaven? In other words, there is a heart righteousness, a righteousness inside, that is characteristic of everyone who belongs to the kingdom of heaven. And therefore, Jesus finishes up this sermon with a strong application to say that that kind of heart righteousness inevitably produces a certain kind of life, a certain kind of fruit. Thus, by their fruit, you will know them, Jesus said. The same is true of us. So that is the context. Now, let's look at this parable. 
And it is a parable. It's a, uh, Jesus finishes the Sermon on the Mount with a parable. A parable is an ex- extended simile, a, a, a comparison between some kind of scenario that you can see in every de- everyday life and the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus is talking about this wise and this foolish builder. Let's begin by looking at similarities between the two builders. The first similarity I notice is that both the wise and the foolish hear the words of Jesus. It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, etc. And then in verse 26, uh, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. So both the wise and the foolish builder hear the words of Jesus. And it's a serious challenge to us that we are responsible for what we listen to. You thought it was a kind of a tame thing to come and sit on Sunday morning and listen to the word of God. It's not. You're held accountable for what you listen to. You're held accountable to do something about it. And so Jesus is saying that the similarities between the two is both hear the word of Jesus. Hearing the words of Jesus is not sufficient. There is a foolish builder who hears the words of Jesus and doesn't do anything about it. So we comfort ourselves sometimes by saying, well, I attend worship. I'm there. I listen to it week after week. Well, you've just met the first condition. You've heard the words of Jesus. But that's a similarity between the two. A second similarity is that both search out a foundation. Both search out a foundation. One of them searches out and finds a solid rock. The other one finds sand. But they're both searching out a place on which to build, looking for something on which to base their home. They're both searching out a foundation. And both are building a house, are they not? Isn't that a similarity between the wise and the foolish? They're both constructing something. They're working hard at it, laboring at it every day. They're both building a house. Tremendous energy expended every day by both the wise and the foolish builder, both of them building a house. Both of them experience the same testing of that house. And Jesus is very parallel in his expressions here. The rains came down, the streams rose, the wind blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation in the rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Same test for both houses. Both houses experiencing, experience testing. They both get tested. And it's not just any testing, is it? It's a vigorous testing. It's a strong testing. It's the kind of testing that leaves one stable and strong and the other one basically in rubble, totally flattened. So it's a vigorous test that both of them undergo. Well, those are the similarities between the two. What are the differences between the two builders? Well, the first starts right out uh, in terms of who the builders are. One of them is wise and the other one is foolish. You've got a wise builder and you've got a foolish builder. It all starts with the heart. Are you wise or are you foolish? That's how it starts. It's talking again, I think, here about heart righteousness, which leads to wisdom. Remember I said the whole key to the entire Sermon on the Mount is what? The very first verse, remember? Blessed are the spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's been a while since I repeated that, but I had to say it again here at the end. That sums up the whole thing. Spiritual beggars are wise because they recognize their own emptiness, their own neediness. Now, a wise builder who is a spiritual beggar comes to the Lord and says, how shall I build? Actually, he begins by saying, where shall I build? But that's the beginning of wisdom, isn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the start of wisdom. It's the knowledge that you need the Lord, that you need a Savior, that you're a sinner, and that only by God's grace can you be saved. This produces a certain heart righteousness which leads to wisdom. And wisdom is inevitably proved right by its actions. It says so in Matthew 11:19. Matthew 11:19 says, "Wisdom is proved right by her actions." If you want to see wisdom, just watch. You can just see the way someone lives. Somebody lives wisely, somebody else lives foolishly. 
So that's a difference between the two builders. One of them is wise and the other is foolish. The second clear difference is that one of them hears the words of Jesus and obeys, whereas the other one hears the word of Jesus and does not obey. Now, does not obey, does that mean disobey? Or does it mean forget? Or does it mean um, change it a little bit? What does it mean? I think it means all of those. You take the words of God and just don't do what Jesus says. You start to change things, you neglect them, you forget them, you disobey them, whatever. But it's not part of your life. It isn't part of who you are, the words of Jesus, obedience to it. But one of them, the wise builder, now he's different. He hears the word and he seeks to obey. When he listens to the Sermon on the Mount, he says, what am I going to do about this? Jesus has told me to enter the narrow gate. Did I enter the narrow gate? Am I walking along the narrow road? There's a concern in the heart of the wise builder as he hears the words of Jesus. What what shall I do? It says that if my right hand causes me to sin, I should cut it off and throw it away. Well, what does that mean? Well, certainly it doesn't mean to actually literally cut off my hand because then I'll have my left hand and I can sin with that one. So it doesn't mean that, but it does mean something. Jesus said something to me. Am I... Am I going to live this out? You see, there's a concern to obey, to hear the words of Jesus and to put it into practice. Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. If you love me, you'll obey me, Jesus said. He said the same thing in John 15, 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. It's just that simple. Connection between being the friend of Jesus and obeying him. It's just that simple. There's that big two-letter word, if. You are my friends if you obey me. So if you want to be a friend of Jesus, it must, uh, obedience must be part of your life. First John 2, verse 3 and following, it says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. There needs to be a principle of life obedience in the person who truly knows Jesus. And that's all Jesus is saying here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The key difference between the two is that one of them hears the word and puts it into practice. The other one hears the word and does not put it into practice. So then I have to ask you, by way of application, what do you do with the words you hear? What do you do with the word of God? It is a dangerous skill to learn, to to be able to listen to a sermon and do nothing about it. That's a very dangerous thing to learn how to do. Some people are experts at it. They're able to listen to any kind of preaching and it makes no impact on their lives whatsoever. That's a very dangerous skill. Don't develop that skill. Run away from it. The way you run away from it is run and embrace the commands of God. Say, God, I want to put this into my life. I don't want to keep living the way I'm living. I want to be different. But it's a dangerous thing. So what do you do with the word you you hear? I think the best thing to do is begin by trembling. Begin by trembling. It says in Isaiah 66 too, this is the one I esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. By the way, what's another way of saying humble and contrite in spirit? A spiritual beggar, right? Spiritual beggar. This is the one I esteem, says God. If you want me to esteem you, to think well of you, first of all, be a spiritual beggar. Second of all, tremble at my word. This is the one I esteem, the one who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, 2. Look it up, it's there. It says that we are to tremble at the word of God. And what that means is take it seriously. God is speaking to me now. God is saying something. I must obey. I must listen and obey. And then you hear to obey. You you begin to think of how your life will change. 
in accordance with it. And then you remember, you hold on to what you've heard. Do you have trouble remembering the Word of God? I think we all do. Have you ever been at the dinner table and realized that you needed something and got up from the refriger- got up and went to the refrigerator and opened it up and stared blankly into it? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. Now, I don't know if it's a sign that something's going wrong or you're distracted or whatever. It's not just old age. It happens to all of us. You stare blankly into it and you say, what did I want? And it's not until you do what? Go back and sit down that you remembered it was the butter that you needed, right? Well, you know, there's a lot of people who do that with the Word of God. It says in James 1.22, do not merely listen to the Word and so, what? Deceive yourselves. There's a self-deceit in thinking that because I listen to the Word of God, I'm a good person. No, no, no. Do not merely listen to the Word of God and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. It says, anyone who listens to the Word but does not do what it says is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror and then, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's like looking into the refrigerator and forgetting what... Have you ever looked at your watch and then had to look at it again ten seconds later because it didn't register? Well, that's the way the Word is sometimes. You know, you're supposed to look in and have it register. It's supposed to make an impact on you. You're supposed to hear and obey. Now, another difference between the two builders, the wise and the foolish, is that one one house survives the test and one house does not survive the test. The wise wise man's house is still left standing at the end of the test, whereas the foolish man's house has fallen with a great crash. Did you ever notice that Jesus finishes his wonderful Sermon on the Mount with a great crash? What an odd way to finish a sermon. But that's exactly how Jesus finishes. Great was the fall of it, it says in another translation. A tremendous fall is the finish of the Sermon on the Mount. But it doesn't need to be that way. The wise man's house is still standing after the test. Is it possible to live a life 60, 70, 80 years here on earth and have something to show for it at the other side of Judgment Day? Jesus says it is. The grace of God teaches us how. It's possible to make it through the test and have something to show for your life. It's possible to find a rock that doesn't move on Judgment Day. It's, it's possible to build a house that will survive the test. But there is a house that falls with a great crash, and it's gone. There's nothing left. All the labor has disappeared. It's gone. Now, the key difference between the two, of course, is the choice of what? Foundations. That's the key difference. It says that, that the wise man's house did not fall because why? It had its foundation on the rock. The foundation means everything. The foolish man's house falls with a great crash because it has its foundation on the sand. Now, what's the difference between the rock and the sand? Well, I was at the beach recently and I was standing. I don't know if you ever stood at the beach and then the waves come in. And if you don't move, you start to feel something funny happening under your feet. Ever notice this? The waves come in and the sand starts getting sucked out from under your feet and you start to tip over like that. And uh, I thought it was interesting. I thought I'd try to stand as long as I could without moving knowing full well I was going to preach on this. You see, I'm sly that way. And I'm thinking, okay, here's sand, and I'm going to do a a sermon illustration here. What started to happen is my heel started sinking lower and lower until it started to pull on my little Achilles tendons or whatever it is, and I'm not very flexible. So it started to hurt, and I said, how much is this really worth to me? I really was hoping to fall over, but I thought there was a chance that I'd rupture an Achilles tendon or something like that, so I needed to step aside. Well, what is the difference between the two foundations? One of them does not move. The other one is moves away. It disappears under the test. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? This is a parable, isn't it? Well, let's see if we can interpret the parable. The wise and foolish man are both hearers of Jesus. They may have been sitting there that very day. 
You can call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you may not be saved. And so Jesus is talking to people who are listening to him. But he's talking to us too. Jesus knew we'd hear this. So he's talking to anybody who hears the Sermon on the Mount. Or really any word of God. But let's focus on the Sermon on the Mount. The wise and foolish builders are both those who hear these words of mine, says Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount. They hear it. Now the wise man begins with a broken heart over sin. He remembers what Jesus said. He didn't forget it. He remembers, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He said, I want the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on from there. Foolish man just listens and says, isn't that an interesting metaphor? Spiritual beggar. I've never really heard that one before. Now, that's interesting. I'll need to write that one down. But there's no obedience. There's been no change. The parable divides people by how they listen and what they do with it. Now, the wise man, as he listens, he, builds his whole, he bases his whole life on Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 3.11, No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He is the foundation. He is the solid rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. It moves away. And so Jesus says, If you build on me, you'll stand firm because I'm not going away. It says in Hebrews 1, It says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. Isn't that powerful? Hebrews 1.10. The heavens and the earth will perish. They will go away. But who remains? Jesus remains. He's the solid rock. And if you build on him, you will survive judgment day. But let me tell you something. Everything you see with your eyes, anything you can touch, you can taste, you can hear, it is temporary. It's not a solid foundation. It's earthbound. And it will not survive the test. If you're building on that, you're building on sand. Now, the wise man, after basing his life on Jesus, he comes to Jesus and says, I'm hungry for you to tell me what to do. I see your authority. I see your leadership. And I want to obey you. So he scours the Beatitudes. He begins to hunger and thirst after the law of God. He takes the law and searches his own heart. And he finds anger and lust and broken covenants in there. And he wants to change. Matthew chapter 5. And then when he moves into chapter 6, he, he says, you know, I've done righteous deeds to be seen by men. I don't want to live that way. I want to live for a secret God who sees my heart. I want to live to please God. I want everything to change. This is the wise man. And he begins building his life. Day after day, he begins to knock those pieces into place, to put the doors in the windows. He's building his house. And he does it in obedience and submission to the authority of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, that man, that man is living for an eternal city that has foundations which cannot be shaken. It says in Hebrews 11.10 that Abraham was looking ahead or forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That is a city that's not going to be shaken on Judgment Day. This wise builder is living for that city and he's building accordingly. Now, the foolish man is different. He hears the words of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, but he has an independent spirit. He doesn't really think he needs Jesus' advice, thank you very much. He knows how to go about building his life. He knows how to make his house. He knows how to put together his own blueprints. He knows how to choose his own foundation. Over there looks good. It's right near the river. Plenty of water. Comfortable place. Who cares that there's sand there? We don't, it looks pretty solid for now. And so he knows how to choose his own foundation. He knows how to select his building materials. He doesn't need to go to Jesus' building school and train, be trained on how to build his house. He already knows Thank you very much. And so he's not listening to Jesus. He knows how to build his own house himself. Maybe he's a career-oriented man who's building a career uh, rung by rung as he's climbing the ladder of success. Maybe it's a woman who's doing the same thing. Or maybe it's just a simple uh, person one way or the other who just ignores the Bible and just doesn't really care what Jesus has to say. But this foolish builder is, has chosen the foundation on his or her own and is building accordingly. 
And notice how the foundation also affects the building technique. When you enter through the narrow gate, you travel on what kind of road? A narrow road, right? When you enter through the broad gate, you travel on a broad road. When you choose a rock for a foundation, you build accordingly. You build to last. When you build on a sandy foundation, you build accordingly, and everything will, will be destroyed. Now, what is the wind, the rain, the rising stream? What is it? It's judgment day. What else could it be? It's the testing of the foundation. Now, God has already promised. I already quoted to you Hebrews 1.10. Everything you see will disappear. It's true. It says in Hebrews 12.26, Now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. It'll be a shaking greater than I experienced that morning in Kobe. A shaking of everything. And when he gets done shaking, there'll be nothing left except what's eternal. So he's going to shake, and that's on Judgment Day. It says in 2 Peter 3, verse 10, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. That means it'll come unawares. It'll come when you're not expecting it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But listen to this. In keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And that one is permanent, folks. If you are part of that new heaven and new earth by faith in Jesus Christ, you will last eternally. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You build on Jesus, you will last and survive judgment day. You should say, hallelujah. My life can last for something. I can get up in the morning and build something that's not going to be destroyed. I can work on the kingdom of heaven and it will last. Everything I do for Christ will make it through that judgment day. It will survive. But the things I do for myself, the things I do selfishly or apart from Christ, or heaven forbid that I have chosen a sandy foundation, the whole thing will disappear. So God has given us a way that we can survive judgment day. And not only us, but our works can come too. Isn't that great? Your works can come with you. You can store up treasure in heaven. You can build a house that will last. Oh, the grace of God. Now, in verses 28 and 29, Matthew concludes with two verses that you may have thought were somewhat of a throwaway, but I don't think so. It says in verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because he taught them as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Matthew finishes the Sermon on the Mount by miraculously, marvelously, putting the focus on the person of Jesus Christ. It, 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 you finish asking the question, who is this man who can teach us this way? You should be marveling at that. Yes, look at the Sermon on the Mount. Yes, look at how marvelous it is. Look at the teaching. But may I ask you to finish by looking at the teacher who said these things? To be amazed at him? The crowd is utterly amazed. They've never heard anything like this. This man comes from Galilee, a simple blue-collar worker, worked with his hands, carpenter, he comes and does some miracles like no one has ever seen before. Yes, there had been miracles in Israel's history, but not like this. Whole crowds healed with a word. Demons driven out. No one had ever seen this kind of power. And then this same simple man climbs up on a mountain one day and sits down and begins to teach like this. Nobody had ever heard it before. This was incredible, the authority of Jesus Christ. And they began to ask, who is this man from Galilee? Where did he get this miraculous power in these teachings? Where did it come from? came from God because he is the incarnate Son of God. Jesus' authority was different than that of the teachers of the law. Well, how is it different? The teachers of the law would say, well, you know, Rabbi uh, Ben Hillel said this in commenting on what Rabbi so-and-so said about that. And on and on they went. How boring. But Jesus said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, but I say to you such and such. 
Incredible authority Jesus had. And he makes confident assertions one after another. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Well, who are you to say that? Do you know who belongs to the kingdom of heaven or not? Yes, I do. I'm able to tell you who's in the kingdom and who's not. Confident assertions. He's able to say, rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Well, is that, can we take that to the bank? Are we sure that our reward will be great in heaven? Yes, because of who said it. It's Jesus who said it, therefore it's true. He makes confident assertions. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Can you make that kind of confident assertion? If you're Jesus, you can. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Is that a confident assertion? Yes, it is. And Jesus can make it because of his authority, because of who he is. And he has an independent authority. He's able to give direct commands. I, the two of us, actually, two of us went through the Sermon on the Mount this week and we found almost 50 separate commands from Jesus Christ in these three chapters. You ought to do it. Go through and just find all the imperatives. Do this, don't do that, stop doing that, be sure you don't do that. One command after another. He is acting like a king, isn't he? And he's giving commands, almost 50 of them. Maybe you can find 50. I couldn't, I worked at it, but I couldn't find 50. But almost 50 commands in the Sermon on the Mount because of his authority. Jesus is able even to give sweeping commands like, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus' reference, self-reference is breathtaking. He talks about himself. He says, Blessed are you when you are persecuted because of me. Not because of the teaching I'm giving you, but because of me. Your reward will be the same as that of the prophets who are persecuted because of God. He's claiming to be God there. Incredible. And he says, You, my disciples, you are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world because of your relationship to me. Incredible. And Jesus says... Do not think that I have come. Stop right there, 517. Do not think that I have come. Well, why did you come into the earth? Can any of you say, well, you know something? I decided to come into the world to do this or that. Well, I have come to do this. Well, I have come to do that. Did you decide to come into the earth? No, your birth was somewhat passive when it came to you. You were suddenly born, right? You were born and then you began to live your life. Jesus said, I have come for a purpose, but it's not to destroy the law of the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. He said, I chose to enter the world. That's incredible. And then he said, I did come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Everything Moses wrote and the prophets wrote was about me. Incredible. And Jesus says, not everyone who says to, says to me, Lord, Lord. He's claiming to be the Lord. He's claiming to be God. And then he says, many will say to me on that day. He's claiming that he's going to sit on the judgment seat and people are going to come and make claims to him. They're going to come and present their lives to him. Is that true? Yes, it is. He's going to sit on the judgment seat. And each one of us, including me, all of us, will come before him and give an account. Every single one of us. And Jesus makes the claim. So as you look through this Sermon on the Mount, you say, this reaches to the lowest depths, the, the bowels of hell, and it reaches up to the highest heavens. Who could give such a teaching? Only the incarnate God, Jesus Christ himself. The authority of Jesus Christ is where we finish here. And that leads us very directly to our application. What is your relationship to this authoritative teacher? What is your relationship to Jesus Christ? Have you entered the narrow gate? Have you built your house on the solid rock? Have you chosen Christ as the solid foundation of your rock, of your, of your house? Or are you building on the sand? Well, in order to know that, you have to look at your obedience. Look at your obedience. Now, I looked back and did a little research. This is my 20th sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. It would have been so much better for you to just sit and listen to Jesus teach it. But since you don't get that, you get a teacher coming and breaking it apart and explaining it. But this is my 20th sermon. At the end of each of those sermons, I gave points of application. 
I urge you to do this or do that or encourage you to obey the text in a certain way. Twenty sermons you've heard. Now, I have to ask you, are you a spiritual beggar now? You've heard it so many times. Would you consider yourself a spiritual beggar? How has hearing about salt and light changed your relationship to the world? Would you say now, that was about four months ago, you heard a sermon on salt and light. Would you say that your relationship to the world is any different because you heard that sermon? Or is it still the same? Now, if you've seen your right hand causing you to sin, have you in fact cut it off and thrown it away? Not literally, but if you've seen some pattern in your life that inevitably leads you to sin, are you doing anything about it or are you just ignoring it, just tolerating it? Are you more likely to turn the other cheek now than you were then? When somebody is offensive to you or attacking you, do you find yourself being more meek, more humble, yielding? Or is it that same old viper coming up from inside you? Do we turn the other cheek? Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Are you storing up treasure in heaven? Or are you storing it up here on earth? Do you pray as Jesus taught you to pray? Do you pattern your prayer life after that? These are just a series of applications that come naturally from the text. Are you still as anxious as ever you were? Maybe you were given to anxiety before. We heard a sermon on anxiety. Are are you still anxious? Or are you doing something about it? Has it made any impact on your life? Or have you developed that skill of hearing a sermon and doing nothing about it whatsoever? And do you do to others what you would have them do to you? A series of applications. The key one, however, is choosing the rock, the solid foundation. And if you have, then these things will start to grow in your life. I did not ask you, are you perfect in these areas? I'm asking, was there a change, a motion, a movement of obedience when you heard it? There was a specific uh, application that I put into practice, and I'll close with this one. On June 20th, I gave you a specific application from that sermon, Ask, and you will, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be open to you. Remember? I urge you to read through 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7, Galatians 5, 22 and 23 with your spouse or with a friend, somebody who knew you well, a Christian friend, somebody spiritually mature, and you were to ask that person, now, which of these traits do you think I need to grow in the most? And the person would say something, and you would humbly accept it, remember? And you would begin praying every day for that trait. And not only that, but you would say, which of these things do you want to grow in? And I'll pray for you too. I'll pray for you, and I'll pray for myself. And then the person probably would reciprocate and do the same the other way. And you were to pray daily for one year, and you were to check up at the end of the year and see how those things happen. Now, did you do it? Just a simple question. You don't need to tell me. You don't need to. You just need to test yourself. Did you do it or did you not? Now, if you say, well, I don't think that's a good application, that's fine. Make up your own application to ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock on the door. That's fine. But just be sure it's faithful to the text and that it leads you into a faithful prayer life. That's just one little microcosm. We've had 20 sermons on the Sermon on the Mount. The key thing here is that Jesus did not mean for his words to come out and fall to the ground useless. They were meant to come out and transform our hearts and our lives. They were meant to change us. And they were especially meant to lead those who do not know Christ as Lord and Savior into a saving knowledge. Because hell is real, so says Jesus. And heaven is real, so says Jesus. And judgment day is coming soon, so says Jesus. Be ready. Be sure that you have entered the narrow gate. Be sure that you're traveling along that narrow road. In a few minutes, we're going to have a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. This is a time in which you can come and do business with God if you would like. Not just for salvation, but suppose God has been speaking to you today. Just come and kneel along here and pray if you'd like to. Or be where you are and pray. If you feel like God is leading you to be a member of the church and you'd like to covenant, uh, come into a covenant relationship with this local body, come and tell us. 
But more than anything, if you feel like you have never given yourself to Jesus as Lord and Savior, even though you may have been baptized when you were 12 and it's been 40 years and you say, you know, there's no fruit. I'm not a Christian. I really want to come to faith in Christ. Then come and tell me. The way of salvation is open. It is possible for you to live the rest of your life in obedience to God and build a house that will last on Judgment Day. Please join me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.